You're listening to Fit in Focus, a podcast from Fitbit, where we talk about all things health and wellness, from the science and business of health to what motivates people on their own health journey. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Fit in Focus. Today's guest is Tracy Geist, who leads the Fitbit Human Research Lab. You're probably wondering what on earth the Human Research Lab is and why do we have one here at Fitbit? Tracy will share with us what she and her team do there, and it goes way beyond having participants run on treadmills while we measure their steps. I've been lucky to spend a lot of time in the lab with Tracy and her team, so I was really excited to have her on the podcast today to share more about what exactly the lab is for and how their work informs so many products and features that Fitbit customers use every day. And it's always fun to hear about the experiments she and the team do. The team does such creative experiments and also ensures they are scientifically rigorous, giving Fitbit users the best experience in the end product, enabling Fitbit to provide new health and wellness metrics. Tracy, welcome to Fit and Focus. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? You know, how did you come to Fitbit and what did you do before us? Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me today. So I'm a physiologist. I uh, got my PhD at Georgia Tech and did a postdoc in wearable robotics at NC State. And what's a physiologist, Tracy, for all of us who do not exactly know? That's a great question. It's such a broad term. So uh, physiologists can be research scientists like myself, or they can also be clinical physiologists that work in healthcare. So some physiologists work at a very cellular level, um, looking at how cells talk to each other, whereas other physiologists will work at organ system level or whole human performance level. So my training focused on the intersection between the nervous system and the musculoskeletal system. Um, So specifically around human movement and gait. So I'm a physiologist. I guess technically you could say I'm a biomechanist or a neuromechanist because uh, I really uh, study and focus on uh, the neural mechanics of human movement and how our nervous system and our skeletal system and muscular system really work together. So, and how, what does a physiologist do at Fitbit? Tell us how all of your background kind of plays into what your role is here today. Yeah, so the great thing about being a physiologist at Fitbit is that, you know, my, my training was very uh, human physiology focused. Um, whereas here at Fitbit, I get to also work with the hardware side of things. Uh, so the great thing is that I can really understand how sensors are made um, so that we can get meaningful measurements of human physiology out of them. So a lot of times it's, you know, physiologists and algorithm developers working really closely with members of the hardware team to figure out, one, what can we measure? And two, is it something that's meaningful? Is it something that uh, you know a user is going to be able to glean insights from their health about? Um, and so that is a big part of where my physiological expertise uh, comes in, uh, in terms of you know what is actually meaningful measurement and how can we then use it? What were you doing before you came to Fitbit? What were some of the other jobs you had using physiology in in your roles? Yeah, so um, I have a I have a little bit of a unconventional unconventional path, I guess. Um, So uh, after, like during graduate school, I actually worked at a railroad um, using my biomechanics background 
uh, working at one of the largest railroads in the country, their uh, training facility, um, using uh, instrumented equipment and force plates to teach new employees about uh, the, the physiology and the biomechanics around how to do movements correctly for injury prevention. You know, you can tell someone all day, don't jump off this, don't jump off this, don't jump off this, you might hurt your ankle. But then if you take them into the lab and you have a force plate there and you demonstrate when you jump off something versus if when you step off, right. the, the forces and how it impacts your knees and your ankles, like it really makes, uh, you know, a compelling case. Um, as part of my postdoc work, I mentioned I worked in uh, wearable robotics. Uh, and that, that experience is what really got me first thinking about wearables, um, as well as, you know, how are, uh, basically how the humans and the, the machines and the technology can interact with one another. We specifically were working on wearable robotic exoskeletons for stroke survivors. So a lot of times after you have a stroke, you will have a, a unilateral deficit um, to your ankle. So basically one side will be impacted more than the other. So you've gone from helping stroke survivors to helping people at all different levels of health. Your lab collects data on lots of people that the team is instrumented in various ways. What kinds of things are you looking at and how do you collect the data? The great thing uh, about the lab is that it allows us to get high quality data sets. Um, so what we can do is we can implement our, our participants or our human subjects with gold standard ground truths. So what a ground truth is, is it's basically a reference measurement. So for example, if we are looking at something having to do with heart rate, we would want to put an ECG strap on the subject um, so that we have a, a reference measurement so that we can then compare our device, our sensor output, our algorithm accuracy to. Um, the great thing about the lab too is that there is so much we can do in it. Um, it's, it's kind of like a playground for physiologists. Um, we have capabilities to take uh, EMG or electromyography measurements. So we can actually measure the electrical signals in the muscles. Um, we have indirect calorimetry, which is uh, a system that allows us to measure oxygen exchange. And that's a really fun one because uh, measuring someone's oxygen exchange will allow you to assess something called VO2 max. VO2 max is basically a measurement of your max aerobic capacity. Um, so even within the lab, we're able to take, you know, very, uh, scientifically rigorous measurements that normally you would have to go to, uh, you know, an academic lab to get. And Tracy, what do you do experiments for? I mean, is this for every piece of hardware that Fitbit puts out? Is it for every feature? Tell us about some of the kind of things that you, that you do these experiments for, and that will kind of then lead into us. We want to hear more about some of your other experiments. So, uh, experiments are done for a whole slew of reasons. Um, you know, developing new hardware is one of them. You know, if we want to just get into the lab with a, a new potential hardware sensor and say, you know, is this even feasible? Can we even take a measurement at the wrist 
of this physiological variable. We'll go into the lab a lot of times to do that, to assess feasibility. Um, we'll also go into the lab for experiments when we uh, you know, have our eyes on a feature that we want to release to users and we need well-labeled data sets to develop algorithms. Who is being tested? So there's, there's actually a couple different ways that we can get data, with the lab only being one of them. Uh, we also have a really robust uh, field testing network, both of internal employees as well as external, uh, you know, just Fitbit users that want to be involved in research. We also will have partnerships with universities, um, as well as we'll sometimes work with clinical sites to collect data, especially on populations that may be difficult to get or uh, need increased oversight. So Tracy, how do you measure someone's VO2 max? So to measure VO2 max, uh, we use a methodology called indirect calorimetry. And what this consists of is um, a big machine called a metabolic cart and a giant tube that will attach from the metabolic cart to a face mask that the person is wearing. Um, the person then uh, will breathe through the mask and the, the concentrations of the oxygen and carbon dioxide are measured by the metabolic cart. Um, so what the metabolic cart does is it can calculate what a person's VO2 is. Um, so to measure someone's max, we have to try to get them to a max level of activity. So the way we do that in the lab is we'll do a protocol on the treadmill called the Bruce protocol, where we will start the treadmill at a certain speed and then at specific intervals of time, increase the incline. So the speed stays constant. It just gets steeper and steeper and steeper, which makes it harder for the person to run. Um, so the, the person will run for as long and as hard as they can until either they decide to tap out and they will, they'll indicate to the, the research scientists, I'm at my max. Um, or we'll also look at the readouts of the metabolic cart. And there is a measurement called RER or respiratory exchange ratio. And when that reaches above a level 1.1, then, then we know that they've, they've reached their max. How does it then get transmitted to something where, hey, I don't actually need to wear on a full-on face gear, run on a treadmill to exhaustion, but I can find out my VO2 max. Like, what is that process from data collection to, you know, a consumer product look like? Yeah, so one of the reasons that we started doing VO2 max uh, estimates in the lab was to uh, facilitate the development of one of our features called cardio fitness score. Um, so what we do in the lab is, you know, we collect a ton of data on, you know, very diverse populations, you know, male, female, age, uh, race, uh, athletic performance. Like we don't only want to be testing athletes. We also want to be testing people that may not be that physically fit. Um, so what we'll do is uh, we will test our subjects with the gold standard device, the indirect calorimetry while they're also wearing custom Fitbit devices that allow us to log much more data. Uh, so with the 
the gold standard reference data as well as our Fitbit data that we're sampling at a much higher rate, we're able to then work with our algorithm developers to develop a feature for users that doesn't require them to go to a lab to get instrumented. And then after it's developed, what we'll then do is we'll validate it on the back end. So we'll have people come back into the lab, we'll actually have them use our algorithm, see what our cardio fitness score estimates as their aerobic fitness score, and then we'll compare that to the ground truth measurement to make sure that what we're putting out there is accurate and reliable. You've done some really interesting experiments. Uh, you know, what has been one of your favorites you've uh, done? One of my favorite experiments that I've done is actually an experiment I did on myself. You know, when you're, when you're a physiologist, uh, you, you tend to, you and, and your loved ones tend to be guinea pigs. Um, so in looking at blood oxygen concentrations or levels of uh, what's called SpO2, I actually took some Fitbit devices um, when I went on a uh, mountaineering trip uh, to Kilimanjaro. And as you go higher in altitude, um, a lot of times your, your blood oxygen levels will decrease. So one of the things that I did every single night as I increased altitude was collected data on myself with Fitbit devices and with ground truths, uh, just to, you know, get some extra data, hack around with a little bit, um, as well as, you know, have a vacation, but also make it scientifically meaningful. <laughs> and so this translated into, we now have multiple different altitude tents in the office. I see people look like they're just laying down on the job with their head <laughs> in the tent, uh, but I've been told that's for research. That's actually one of my favorite experiments. It's one of the best experiments ever because you're encouraged to fall asleep during it. So we wanted to get more development data around a relatively new sensor in some of our devices, which is a red and infrared sensor that has the potential to measure relative changes in SpO2. Uh, SpO2 is basically a measure of how saturated your blood is with oxygen. So we purchased altitude tents and would have subjects come into the lab and lay down inside the altitude tent. Um, what we're able to do then is basically suck out some of the oxygen to simulate them going to a much higher altitude. Uh, we can actually get the tents up to about 14,000 feet, which is equivalent to Mount Whitney. Um, we definitely had a Fitbit device on the, the subjects. Um, we have Fitbit devices with, with custom firmware and hardware that allows us to collect uh, higher frequency data. And then as is standard in the lab, we also have a, a ground truth measurement on the subject so that we can then compare after the fact how the Fitbit is performing and those sensors are working versus the ground truth. As a, as a parent with multiple kids, I've always noticed we have that fleet of strollers that are Fitbit owned in the, in the lab. What do you do with a bunch of strollers and why do we have strollers? So one of the great things um, for working at a large company like Fitbit is that, you know, in addition to our in-house lab facilities, we also have a robust customer service network. So we're able to get feedback from the users that are, you know, using our devices on a daily basis on where we can improve. 
And one of the things that came up a couple of years ago uh, is that uh, people were concerned about not getting their accurate step count when they were pushing strollers or pushing um, uh, buggies in the supermarket. And I mean, anyone that's ever done a, a step battle knows that people get very intense about their step count. Yeah, you can't uh, lose those important steps. <laughs> when we started getting this feedback, we were thinking, okay, well, we need to get data on this. Um, but then as we looked into it further, we realized, you know, we have a, a three-axis accelerometer. So hand orientation is something that is very important for us to take into account to help us, you know, detect the type of gait a person is doing, whether they're walking, whether they're running, um, as well as the number of steps. So we realized with baby carriages, there are multiple different designs and multiple different hand orientations that a person could have. It became very important for us to test in the lab with multiple different types of strollers so that all of the hand orientations were accounted for. So what we ended up doing was buying a bunch of strollers and the gold standard for counting steps actually includes a clicker. So it includes a researcher clicking every time they see a step. So I believe the, the gold standard is to videotape the person as they're walking uh, and then have two people sit and watch the videotape and click every time they see a step. Well, one of the things that we wanted to do is make sure that this works well in, you know, robust environments. So, you know, outdoor walking on different types of terrain. So what we ended up having our researchers do was a researcher would follow a subject as they walked through the streets of San Francisco and they would just concentrate on their feet and click every time the person took a step. Um, so if you ever see a bunch of people walking around with 20 pound dumbbells in strollers to simulate, you know, weight in the carriage um, and staring at people's feet, you're likely watching a Fitbit study where we're collecting data to either, you know, continually improve those algorithms or just to assess performance on things we're about to release. I will say that I, you know, we have employees participate in these a lot and the stroller study was my first one as an employee to participate in the research study. And I got quite a few funny looks walking around San Francisco with a dumbbell and a stroller being followed by someone clicking my steps. So I, I hope all our listeners next time they see that will know why I was doing it. <laughs> Has anyone ever actually stopped yeah, people from like, you're kind of gone, what's going on? I never got stopped, but I definitely got, I got looks. <laughs> so I'm curious. Um, you know, you, you talked about some of the basic data collection, you know, stress or sorry, uh, steps. What about kind of going on to some of the, you know, more esoteric stuff like sleep? So we've got sleep experts on your team who kind of are looking at stuff. What, what are they looking at? And what kind of tests do they make people do or ask people to do? Yeah. So uh, we, one of the great things that we're able to do is assess sleep stages from the wrist. And sleep stages gives you an idea of the amount of light sleep, deep sleep, REM sleep, um, and wake time that you have at night. In order to actually test that and assess the performance, we need uh, you know, professional sleep technicians in order to analyze and score our ground truths. So we have uh, EEGs that we will instrument our, our subjects with. And what an EEG is, is an electroencephalogram. 
And basically what it consists of is electrodes on your head to measure brain waves. So we have a couple different versions of it. Some have more electrodes than others, depending on you know, what it is we're looking at. Um, one of the larger systems, we actually will instrument people in the office. So you know, we'll uh, part their hair, rough up the skin a little bit, tape an electrode to their scalp, and then make sure all of the wires are hooked up to you know the the big data collection central which requires a suitcase so what people will have to do is have uh you know tons of electrodes coming off their scalp uh wired to a suitcase and then they'll either go home with the suitcase or they'll go they'll go to a hotel with the suitcase um so we can collect that that gold standard eeg data um we also have more streamlined versions to allow for you know, much higher sample size, much quicker. And then we also contract with uh, sleep labs. So we will work with researchers to do EEG and polysomnogram tests um, in an actual sleep lab. So between the, uh, you know, the clinical sites that we'll work with, as well as the, the ground truths and the sleep technicians that we have on staff, we end up with a uh, really, really great amounts of sleep data. So people can really sleep on the job and get paid for it. <laughs> I guess um, technically. And, you know, kind of when you're doing these experiments, you talk a little bit about kind of make sure you've got to have a diverse pool. Um, you know, if there's a lot of scientific recommendations or health recommendations that are built on small sample sets of like, you know, everyone from, you know, one country in Norway generates like, you know, what everyone to this day uses a health thing. We, we've got very different physiological systems sometimes. Um, how, do you, how do you kind of drive that diversity? And how do you measure that you're getting an appropriately diverse population? Um, how, do you, how do you quantify that you've got an appropriate level of diversity to kind of say this metric applies to all humans? Mm -hmm. So we do, uh, we do a lot of demographic measurements on, on our users. Um, you know, we, we ask them, you know, about about age, activity level, gender, uh, race. We also take quantitative measurements of, of skin tone, for example. So there is something called a Fitzpatrick scale, um, which is a, a scale of skin tone from one to six. Uh, and we, you know, use qualitative assessments of, you know, where they fall on that scale as well as we use something called a Pantone reader, um, which is actually a, a device. If you ever go into Sephora to get your makeup matched, right. that's a Pantone yeah. reader. Yeah. <laughs> so we use those in the lab because what they'll allow us to do is give a, you know, a quantitative uh, measurement to that skin tone. Um, additionally, we, we use a lot of different recruitment methods. We'll uh, use external contractors, um, we'll also use uh, employees a lot of times um, who want to participate in research, as well as, as I mentioned earlier, working with, you know, university partners or clinical sites. And so, you know, going to the lab, there's some, you know, there's definitely the things you'd expect, you know, your kilometer, the things with wires coming out of it, you know, walls of computers, you know, your treadmills, your bicycles, all those things. You also have like rooms that get very hot or very dry. Uh, why were, you, why, why were you trying to put a controlled environment around people when they're exercising? 
Yeah, so uh, we actually made a, an environmental chamber, um, which allows us to modulate temperature as well as humidity. Um, and one of the reasons that you would want to do that, actually, there's, there's so many reasons you could want to do that. Uh, you know, temperature studies. Beyond a torture chamber. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, temperature studies, like looking at, you know, how someone's body temperature changes, uh, looking at, uh, you know, hydration levels and water loss, um, you know, just assessing physiological performance in these different types of environments and how things like heart rate or heart rate variability might change. Um, there's a lot of different things we can look at in the uh, environmental chamber. Um, and, you know, putting one together ourselves in the lab was definitely uh, a big undertaking and, and a lot of fun. Not so fun for the subjects that we may run in a hot environment for an extended amount of time, um, but definitely a lot of fun as a researcher. So they would have preferred a trip to like the Caribbean or something like that for their runs. Right, or, you know, that, that sleeping study. Yeah, I was like, going to say, I prefer the sleep study over the hot room running study. So ping me when you need more on that one. Tracy, <laughs> definitely, definitely. So Andrea, how many studies have you participated in? I, I've actually done quite a few. I that's I know the research team pretty well because I, I sign up for a lot of studies and then you know, get to spend time just seeing what they do over there and picking their brains, which, which actually is one of my questions is, um, tell us a bit more about who, who works with you in the lab. I, there's a lot that the lab does and it's not just you alone, but what are some of the backgrounds of people that work in the lab? How do you end up there? Do you have to be a physiologist or what are the other kind of backgrounds that people have? Yeah. So we, we have an amazing group of scientists and analysts that work in the human research lab. Like they are the reason anything happens. Um, so we have a couple scientists with exercise physiology backgrounds. Um, we have another biomechanist, actually. Um, so they did a lot of, that scientist did a lot of work in clinical environments uh, and also working, working with children previously, which, which is really great expertise to have with you know, our products like ACE. Um, we also have people with psychology backgrounds. We have sleep technicians, like I mentioned. Um, and we have people with like exercise science, kinesiology backgrounds as well, which is really, it's, it's such a great, great background to have when you are instructing people to run through studies. Like, you know, personally, I'm a really bad subject. I'm not going to do something unless I have explicit instruction to do it. So I'm like, you know, moving, checking things out. I'm curious, like definitely messing up data sets. Um, but, you know, the members of the, the team are, are so highly attuned to any potential confounder that could impact the data. Um, so they're, they're really to credit for the, the high quality data sets that we have. Yeah, I have the when I've done even just as simple things as I've done an experiment where I just had to like sit for a while and then like quickly stand up and then hold that standing for a while. Even those simple things, you can tell that the people facilitating them are like, you stood up too fast, you stood up a little too slow. We need you to do it again to get this exact measure. And it's really awesome to see how they they do those together and how they facilitate the experiments. And I follow directions, unlike you. So I'm very I listen very closely. <laughs> and so how do you ensure, you know, the rigor of experiments in the lab, Tracy? So in addition to making sure that our experiments are 
uh, appropriately powered and we have the, the sample sizes that we need. Um, it really comes down to our, our experimental design. We really try to focus on having hypothesis-driven designs. So uh, really detailing up front, you know, what are our variables that we're controlling? What are the variables that are potentially going to be impacted? Uh, and designing the experiment to limit as many confounding factors as possible. Um, one of the ways that we do that is through randomization and counterbalancing to prevent order effects. So uh, an order effect is, is basically if you have someone, if you have your whole cohort do the same stuff in the same order, mm -hmm. you know, there could be effects of fatigue, there could be effects of learning, uh, there could even be physiological impacts. Like, you know, if they uh, were nervous in the beginning and then aren't nervous later. Um, additionally, we, we make sure that all of our experiments go through a rigorous uh, series of peer review. Um, so, you know, we're not just making them, uh, our experiments in isolation, we're, you know, working with our teammates, uh, we're working with, with our colleagues across the broader research team, and we're also even working with external consultants and experts in the field to make sure that uh, what we're doing is, is rigorous and there's nothing, uh, and we're minimizing as many confounders as we possibly can. Thanks so much for, for having this convo with us, Tracy. We, I learned a lot about the lab and I know a lot about the lab. So <laughs> I, we appreciate you coming on and sharing this all with us. Thanks, Tracy. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.